Today's episode is sponsored by Tigo. For most of us, indemnity insurance is one of our biggest costs of practice. But when was the last time you took a look at the coverage and compared your premium with others? Many of us are still with the same insurer we joined in med school or intern year. Thousands of doctors have made the switch to Tigo and benefited from their personalised approach to pricing. You will also get an extra two months free in your first year. If you are new to private practice, you might even qualify for four years of discounted premiums. Tigo offers competitive premiums, quality cover and 24-7 support backed by top medico-legal advisors. Get a free quote and discover why thousands of doctors are insured by Tigo by visiting tigo.com.au. Hello listeners and welcome to Deep Breaths, a podcast covering topics related to the Part 2 anaesthetic exam. I'm Dr. Kate Steele. And I'm Dr. Kate McCrossan. And today's episode is Bleeding Love, where we'll discuss the management of postpartum hemorrhage. As always, in this podcast, we represent our own views and not those of our employers or ANSCA. The words postpartum hemorrhage have the ability to strike fear in the heart of even the most experienced and weathered anaesthetists among us. Worldwide, postpartum hemorrhage is responsible for 8% of maternal deaths in developed nations and a whopping 20% of deaths in countries considered as developing. Regardless of our expertise level, I'm sure we've all had varying experiences in managing this potentially fatal crisis. So let's take the time to review postpartum hemorrhage and the way we manage it. Sounds good. Let's start with a definition. The Royal Australian and New Zealand College of Obstetricians and Gynecologists define postpartum hemorrhage, or PPH, in parallel with its traditional definition, as a blood loss of 500 mils or more during the puparium, with a severe hemorrhage defined as blood loss of greater than 1,000 mils. It can also be further classified as a primary postpartum hemorrhage, which occurs within the first 24 hours of delivery, and as a secondary postpartum hemorrhage, which happens between 24 hours and six weeks from delivery of the neonate. Postpartum hemorrhage is diagnosed during caesarean delivery when blood loss exceeds 1,000 mils. At term, placental blood flow is approximately 750 mils per minute, and patients can rapidly lose large amounts of blood in very short periods of time. The main physiologic mechanism involved in preventing bleeding after delivery of the neonate is constriction of the blood vessels supplying the placental bed, and this is achieved by uterine contraction. Vasoconstriction, platelet aggregation and clot formation then ensue and assist in achieving hemostasis. Ultimately, management of a postpartum hemorrhage is guided by the underlying cause, and these causes can be summarised by the four T's. The first is trauma, and this refers to any sort of traumatic damage to the tissues within the reproductive tract. This is the cause of about 20% of postpartum hemorrhages. Causes include tears of the perineum, vagina or cervix, and uterine rupture. And it's worthwhile noting that the risk of trauma-related significant bleeding is increased with instrumental vaginal delivery, precipitous delivery, and with episiotomy. The second T stands for tone, specifically uterine atony, and this accounts for about 70% of postpartum hemorrhages. An atonic uterus cannot clamp down on the placental bed and pinch off those bleeding vessels. It can be seen in prolonged labour, particularly a prolonged second stage, in precipitous delivery, increasing parity, oxytocin withdrawal, therapeutic administration of magnesium sulfate, an instrumental birth or uterine overdistension as a result of a multiple pregnancy, polyhydramnios or fetal macrosomia. The third T refers to tissue and represents retained products of conception, intrauterine blood clots or an incomplete delivery of an intact placenta. 
This cause is responsible for about 10% of postpartum hemorrhages. Clinical conditions in which there is increased risk of retained products include placenta previa or accreta. Uterine inversion is also included in this list, and that is frankly something I hope to never ever see in my career. <laughs> mm. And the last T stands for thrombin and refers to bleeding disorders. This is the minority and represents less than 1% of postpartum bleeds. Possible causes for bleeding of this nature include thrombocytopenia or hereditary bleeding disorders such as von Willebrand's disease or disseminated intravascular coagulation. DIC can occur as a result of many causes in the peripartum period, which include severe preeclampsia, placental abruption, sepsis, intrauterine fetal demise and an amniotic fluid embolism. Now, it's important to remember that even though many risk factors for postpartum hemorrhage have been found, the majority of patients experiencing this complication have no identifiable risk factors. Obstetricians focus on risk reduction strategies that include active management of the third stage of labour, or in plain terms, using prophylactic oxytocics and assisting delivery of the placenta. This also involves identifying patients with an increased risk of postpartum hemorrhage due to specific conditions and mitigating this risk during the antenatal and intrapartum periods. Now, as anaesthetists, we are primarily involved with these cases in the operating theatre, either patients presenting to theatre to surgically manage postpartum bleeding, or patients who experience PPH during caesarean section. Principles of management include volume replacement and transfusion, administering uterotonics, correction of the cause of the PPH, and correcting a developing coagulopathy. During this time, good communication and teamwork is a must. That's right. If the patient is unstable, care proceeds in accordance with ALS guidelines and as you would in any crisis, you start by calling for help. Airway and breathing assessment involves a rapid scan to see whether the patient is oxygenating and breathing appropriately. Apply 100% oxygen and prepare for intubation if the airway is not secure and the patient's laryngeal reflexes or level of conscious are obtunded. Circulation management includes inserting two large ball cannulas if not already in situ and volume resuscitation with crystalloid, colloid or O-negative blood. If not already taken, you should perform a blood group and hold and a cross match. And depending on the clinical picture, you may need to activate a massive transfusion protocol. Treating the cause of PPH is, for the most part, managed by the obstetric team, but there are certainly choices that we can make to increase the success of managing these patients. If a patient is coming to theatre to manage a PPH after delivery, the advice is to avoid a regional technique if she is hypovolemic. Resuscitation prior to the commencement of anaesthesia may be appropriate, but needs to be balanced with the need to facilitate timely surgical correction of the cause of the hemorrhage. Now, Kate, let's assume we have a patient with a retained placenta after a vaginal delivery, and she's managing her blood pressure, but with an ongoing steady trickle of blood loss. How would you anaesthetize this patient? Well, in this instance, it sounds like I've got time to make sure I've got two large cannulas in place and a bag of normal saline running rapidly. These patients often come around to theatre on a Sinto infusion, Sintocinon, sorry, I should say. So I'd make sure that it's ideally running through its own IV and that I don't stop it. Now, if the patient hasn't had a group and hold, I'd take some blood quite quickly and order it urgently. And if I'm really concerned, I'll order a cross match of two to four units of packed red cells. Now, at this stage, I don't feel like I will need additional monitoring like an art line, but obviously that can be inserted if, if needed. And if the patient has an epidural in that's working well, I'd consider a gentle top-up with a combination of 2% lignocaine 
caffeine with adrenaline. I'd maybe add some sodium bicarbonate and I'd always do this with a vasopressor like metaraminol ready to go. Even with a block in situ, I'm always prepared to convert to a GA. And if I have any concerns about a potentially unstable patient, I'd just do a GA from the start. Now, for a GA, my induction plan in these patients is a rapid sequence induction because they're usually unfasted. I personally like to use cricoid pressure with the caveat that I remove it in the event of a poor laryngeal view. And if I have any concerns about the airway, my equipment choice will mirror this and I'll have a video laryngoscope ready to go with the adjuncts that I feel I will need. I would ideally set up a Tiva anesthetic with a BIS monitor for this patient because volatiles worsen uterine tone and I don't want to do anything that's potentially going to worsen the bleeding. I'm also going to do everything I possibly can to keep this patient warm and this would include warming blankets, fluid warmers and using pre-warmed fluids. Like I said before, I'd have a syringe with metaraminol ready to bolus if the patient becomes hypotensive and despite potentially having a syntocinone infusion running, I'll still have 10 units of syntocinone drawn up to bolus and a vial of vergometrin that I can crack and draw up if I need it. Yeah, I think my plan would be similar. I suppose what's missing from this is um, it sounds like the patient's reasonably stable. We also need to have some estimate of their blood loss. So, yeah. you know, classically we sort of teach the registrars that about a roughly about a litre is where you'd start considering, you know, do you mm. do you go to GA, do you go regional? Yeah. Um, but, you know, blood loss can be concealed. Yes. These are young patients that often manage their hypovolemia very well. So mm. it's, I think you really have to just a quick look at them you know, look at their perfusion, look at their pallor, obviously look at their orbs, look at their heart rate. You know, there's a big yeah. difference between 90 and 110 and kind of use all those things together really to make a decision. But I think that sounds um, Yeah, absolutely. And I suppose, and there's, there's obviously no medical basis for this, but something else I like to tell people is that if your spidey senses are tingling, don't ignore them. Yeah, well, that, that's right. It's that sort of um, sixth sense we developed. It's probably backed up by some sort of science if we're looking to it. <laughs> One could only hope by this stage of training. <laughs> now, what about if the patient was hypotensive with a blood pressure of 70 on 40, tachycardia to 110 beats per minute and with ongoing significant vaginal blood loss? How would you manage this situation? Yeah, I mean, this is obviously a critically unwell hypovolemic patient mm. that needs resuscitation and uh, some sort of operation pretty quickly. Mm. So my approach would be the same as the GA for the stable patient, but probably a few important differences. Mm. So I'll probably call for another anaesthetic consultant or an experienced registrar and another anaesthetic technician to give me a hand. Mm. It's generally just an issue about hands rather yeah. than expertise in these cases. Absolutely. Clearly, this patient needs two big drips, have two bags of saline running through or Hartman's, whatever I can get my hands on, and they really do need a cross-match of four units and mm. they need to come to theatre ASAP. If I can get them start the resuscitation before we go to sleep, that's fine. You kind Perfect. of just have to do things when you can, I think, in these yeah. cases. Yeah. And they may need O-negative blood, although it'd be interesting just to do um, if we get it, maybe get a hemocure or something on a finger yeah. prick to get some idea of where we are. Because if they started with a decent hemoglobin, it might just be fluid resuscitation that yeah, gets you exactly. through the first half an hour to an hour. Yeah, exactly. Look, if I'm really concerned um, about this patient being unstable, I'd set up the level one or the Belmont rapid infuser, depending on what's available in your institution in mm. terms of rapid infusion. I'd also consider having a midwife or obstetrician performing by manual compression of the uterus throughout the induction and while the surgery is commenced. This is sort of up to the obstetricians in terms of the management yeah, of, of the cause of the PPH. 
Uh, so we've already mentioned I have an anaesthetist and tech on the airway. I have another anaesthetist and tech fo- focused on the blood and the vasopressors. Mm. Uh, this patient is likely to become unstable, like any bleeding patient in an obstetric scenario exactly. during induction and maintenance. Uh, and depending on how the surgical procedure goes and the ongoing blood loss, then I'd have a low threshold of activating a massive transfusion protocol. But there's usually an obstetric route that you go down with that. Yeah. And that would involve point of care testing, ideally. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And that's fair enough. Now, the administration of oxytocin features heavily when we're managing a postpartum hemorrhage in theatre. And there are three main drugs that we can give to increase uterine tone. Oxytocin is administered as five unit boluses and via infusion of between 30 and 50 units diluted in 500 to 1000 mils of saline and titrated to effect. Ergometrin is administered either as a 0.5 milligram intramuscular injection or by a slow intravenous infusion of 0.125 milligrams and repeated up to a maximum of 0.5 milligrams. And last, we have PGF2-alpha, which is administered as 0.25 milligrams intramyometrial injections, and it's done by the obstetrician in four divided doses into the four quadrants of the uterus. Now, in addition to this, patients can also receive misoprostol one milligram per rectum. The 2013 National Health and Medical Research Council's Patient Blood Management Guidelines for Obstetrics and Maternity recommend that the following investigations be conducted both early and regularly when managing postpartum hemorrhage. These include temperature, acid-base status, ionised calcium, haemoglobin, platelet count, PT and INR, APTT and fibrinogen level. The results of these investigations should be considered with the clinical context when managing ongoing obstetric bleeding. When it comes to the transfusion of blood products and massive transfusion, there is really only one main difference between managing obstetric patients and the general population. In obstetrics, fibrinogen levels typically increase to 5 to 6 grams per litre at term. Now, by comparison, the normal fibrinogen range for non-obstetric patients is 2 to 4.5 grams per litre. In the obstetric population, low fibrinogen levels are an independent risk for developing a severe postpartum hemorrhage, with one study illustrating that levels below 2 grams per litre have a 100% positive predictive value for developing a severe postpartum hemorrhage. Ultimately, this difference in physiology translates to the early administration of cryoprecipitate within a massive transfusion protocol, and we see this as the presence of cryoprecipitate in earlier MTP product boxes. The administration of blood products is addressed in the National Blood Authority 2015 Patient Blood Management Guidelines Module 5, Obstetrics and Maternity. Their suggestions regarding the administration of blood products to the bleeding maternity patient are as follows. For red blood cells, the decision to transfuse is usually based upon hemodynamic changes and estimated blood loss rather than a specific hemoglobin trigger. They advise that most women will tolerate a blood loss of up to 1,000 mils without the need for an immediate red blood cell transfusion. Regarding platelets, there is no consensus on what the optimal platelet count should be. Standard MTPs suggest platelet transfusion when the platelet count falls below 50 times 10 to the power of 9, and this is also suggested by the Royal College of Obstetricians and Gynecologists, but there is uncertainty as to whether early transfusion is beneficial. For the administration of fresh frozen plasma, there is no evidence to suggest that the dose or timing of its administration should differ from standard MTP protocols for critically bleeding maternity patients, unless disseminated intravascular coagulation is present. 
Ontocryo precipitate and fibrinogen concentrate. There is some uncertainty regarding the fibrinogen level threshold for transfusion of cryoprecipitate. Ranscorg's PPH guidelines advise fibrinogen replacement when serum levels are between 1.5 and 2 grams. The Australian Blood Management Guidelines discuss clinical trials that suggest a threshold of 2 grams as a more appropriate threshold for transfusion. When it comes to fibrinogen replacement, the Patient Blood Management Guidelines state that providing a dose of 3 to 4 grams of fibrinogen requires the administration of about 8 to 10 bags of cryoprecipitate. Each of these bags is usually 30 to 40 mL in volume, and this cryoprecipitate contains high levels of fibrinogen, Factor 8, von Willebrand Factor, Factor 13, and fibronectin. At the time of writing the 2015 guidelines, fibrinogen concentrate was not licensed for use in obstetric hemorrhage, but it's worth noting that Ranscog's PPH guidelines recommend its administration if available when managing PPH. Currently, fibrinogen concentrate is only licensed for use in patients with congenital fibrinogen deficiency, but it is used off-label when managing fibrinogen deficiency in major bleeding, including obstetric patients, and the brand we use here in Australia is Reastap. For the administration of tranexamic acid, administration is in accordance with the recommendations from the WOMAN trial. This clinical trial administered one gram of tranexamic acid to patients upon diagnosis of PPH with a repeated dose of one gram 30 minutes later if bleeding was persistent. As it was found to reduce death from bleeding in women with PPH with no adverse effects, the recommendation is to administer it as soon as possible after the bleeding onset. And lastly, regarding recombinant activated factor 7, there is no evidence to suggest that the dose and timing of administration is any different for the obstetric population, and you may know this drug by its brand name Nova 7. Throughout this process of administering blood products, it's important to remember to do the following. Actively warm the patient, aiming for a body temperature above 35 degrees Celsius. Replace ionized calcium, aiming for serum levels above 1 millimole per litre. Aim for a pH of greater than 7.2. Organize for cell salvage where possible. And point of care testing, specifically Rotem, can be a useful tool when managing major hemorrhage to help guide blood product choice and to minimize unnecessary product administration. So keep in mind while we're doing our thing, up the top end, the surgeons are performing a variety of procedures to try and stem the flow of bleeding. The list of possible surgical interventions for managing PPH includes balloon tamponade, and this can include the use of a spectrum of different pieces of equipment, including a Foley catheter, Bakri balloon, Rush balloon, or the Sangstuck and Blackmore esophageal catheter. But certainly in both of our experience, the most common is a Bakri. Absolutely. Uh, it could be a hemostatic brace suture, such as a B-Lynch suture, to help try to compress the uterus, bilateral ligation of the uterine arteries, bilateral ligation of the internal iliac arteries, notably by someone experienced in such a procedure, selective arterial embolization, or hysterectomy. Keep in mind, though, that none of these procedures occurs instantaneously and that while they're being performed, the patient may continue to bleed. Maneuvers that can be performed in the meantime to try and reduce the severity of bleeding in the short term include uterine massage or bimanual compression of the uterus and of note emptying the bladder can help here sometimes too surgical clamps or direct pressure by hand to the uterine arteries or direct pressure or clamping of the abdominal aorta. Permissive hypotension is briefly discussed in the MBA's 2015 blood management guidelines. Basically, the role of permissive hypotension in maternity patients is uncertain and there are concerns about its use, particularly prior to delivery and the potential compromise to the fetus if unborn. There are also concerns about its use affecting uterine tone in postpartum patients. 
So I'm curious, Kate, do you have any memorable cases where you've had to manage a significant postpartum hemorrhage? Yes, uh, <laughs> probably. Probably the most significant was actually a patient when I was working at the Wesley's and ICU Reg actually a long time ago. That's privately. Mm. And uh, yeah, there was a patient there that had an amniotic fluid embolism. Oh, gosh. And had a really significant hemorrhage associated with that. So that really mm. brings back, you know, I remember the gynecologist, you know, placing a fist on the aorta so mm. we could just resuscitate the mm. cardio kind of brain axis. Uh, and I do, I just distinctly remember it. I was pretty junior. I was only about four years out of med school, but. I was running the blood products and mm. and we were just giving everything we had, like whatever arrived we would just give because... Of course, at a private hospital, you don't have a lot of blood. Like you just well, have a short supply, don't you? it's not too you? bad where I was working because they do a lot of cardiac and vascular. So it was, we had a pretty good access, but it was just, the, you know, the first tube we sent, the lab wrote back and said, it's just not clotting at all. They oh rang and said, it's not clotting. That's Is there not something wrong with this sample? <laughs> oh my gosh. Mm-hmm. And I'm guessing um, that was pre-Rotem times as well? Yeah, we yeah. didn't, yeah, that was probably 2010. Um, so look, that was, I guess, just a very early experience. And I was sort of running a little team of nurses. We, um, yeah, we you know when the platelets came, we just gave that. When the cryo oh came, gosh. we just gave that. Um, anyway, the patient actually made a full recovery. Oh, wow. Baby was okay. It was during a cesarean section. Um, so yeah, I guess that was a fairly, and, and you know, I'm assuming she went into DIC and that oh, sort gosh. of thing with AFE, but, um, oh, I'm feeling left, stressed just thinking about that. <laughs> I left a bit of an impression. Oh, so. just a, just a small one for mm, the looks of things. How about yourself? Well, look, I'm not going to lie. One of the scariest in theatre experiences I've ever had to date was with a postpartum hemorrhage. And it was, it was looking back, I can kind of smile and laugh about it, but at the time it was like the stars were aligning to give us a truly horrendous in theatre experience. <laughs> so the clinical situation that we had was that we had had a patient transferred from interstate um, and this patient had only had obstetric management by her GP. Mm. She hadn't actually had yep. any obstetrician involvement. This girl had congenital cardiac disease. She'd had, I think, about three different rounds of surgery before the age of nine and throughout Mm. the pregnancy she had had sort of New York Heart Association class three Mm. shortness of breath. So Mm. she she was having problems during the pregnancy. She presented to her local hospital with a small placental bed bleed and when the obstetricians found out about her in this quite small centre, they freaked out, (laughs) rightly so, and sent her to the major tertiary centre where I was working at the time. And when we were in theatre, so this this lovely lady, she was a primate. This was her first pregnancy. She was young. She Mm. was excited. And she had a spinal. We had two big drips. We also had an art line in. Mm. Um, And I was working with a very, very good consultant. I was a trainee at the time. And I don't remember a lot about it. I've blocked a lot of it from my memory. (laughs) But what I do remember is that this bleed the amount of blood that she lost in such a short period of time Mm. was actually really terrifying. Mm. So what happened was the baby came out, everything was going great, and then the obstetricians went really quiet and we started hearing the suckers Mm. going. (laughs) And one of us, I I think it was my consultant, she looked over the drapes and asked the obstetricians what was going on, undiagnosed accreta. So they had trouble getting the placenta out and she was just dumping blood while this was happening. Mm. And then within... It would have been about 30 seconds of the baby coming out. Her blood pressure took an absolute nosedive. She became semi-conscious. Mm. She, I'm getting goosebumps just talking about this. Mm. And it was just, I think the thing that really stuck with me, because I don't remember a lot about the resource, but it was just so fast. It was terrifying. Yeah. 
Yeah. So it can happen very, very fast. <laughs> yeah, it really can. Things yeah. happen quickly in obstetrics, but particularly PPH. Oh, my gosh. Like, it just really. – oh, it still makes me feel oh, – my blood runs cold. Now, look, before we sign off, we want to remind our consultants and fellows that you can claim CPD for your listening experience with mm. us today. So log us as a learning session within the Knowledge and Skills Division and as evidence, take a screenshot of the podcast episode. And before we go, Kate, yes. we haven't actually talked about what we've learned in anaesthesia this oh, week. I'd forgotten about that. <laughs> <laughs> what have you learned in anaesthesia this week? Well, I recently had a patient that had to have an emergency laparotomy and unfortunately this patient had had rivaroxaban in the preceding 24 hours. Good. So the surgeons had involved the haematologists and I was actually really surprised because their advice was, yeah, just go ahead with the surgery. Don't give anything beforehand. If they bleed, give them some factor seven. And to be perfectly honest, I was surprised through, throughout the entire case, hemostasis wasn't an mm, issue. Mm. Everything went really well. Like I was ready with blood products in the, <laughs> in the stat lab fridge and, and nothing, nothing yeah. happened. I was really surprised. So I suppose I learned that just because someone is completely anticoagulated when they come to theatre, that doesn't necessarily mean that they will bleed. No, it's quite unpredictable. I think you really, yeah. particularly, I mean, we know with clopidogrel, well, some people just don't actually metabolize their clopidogrel yeah, as exactly. well, but it, it is interesting, isn't it? Exactly. So, yeah. Kate Elizabeth, what did you learn this week? Oh, well, I guess, you know, we're recording this in, uh, where are we? January. Yes. And uh, we're still in the middle of the coronavirus pandemic and probably heading into the worst period, you know, uh, for Australia. And um, we're obviously all spending a lot of time in PPE. Yes. And I've been trying to figure out why I feel so terrible in an N95 mask. And I hadn't really put two and two together, but talking to one of my colleagues, it's pretty difficult to nasal breathe in an N95 mask That's most so of true, the time. Because your nasal bridge gets squashed. Mm, yeah. yeah. So then you mouth breathe and then you can't humidify your air properly and then you get dehydrated. So mm. that sort of combination of being forced to mouth breathe, they can give you a sore throat and things like that as of well. Of course. So their solution to this was to um, prehydrate. Oh, that's a good um, idea. Which I think is a good idea if you can. Yeah. So I've certainly started trying to drink a little more, you know, non-coffee in the yeah. morning. <laughs> Some water, maybe a little bit of juice. Uh, yeah, and just try to keep up with the fluids. But it's difficult and I think um, pretty much everyone who listens to this contemporaneously when it comes out sometime in February will agree that wearing it 95 is not comfortable and if there's yeah. any tips we can do to try to make ourselves feel a bit better. Yeah, and I guess that dehydration is compounded when you start adding plastic gowns and yeah, exactly. hot theatres, so just take care of yourself, everyone. Thank you so much for joining us on what has been a really important topic. As always, you can contact us at deepbreathspod at gmail.com. We'd love it if you spread the word to follow us on your favourite podcast platform and give us a five-star rating if you like what you hear. In fact, Spotify now allows for ratings, so please jump on. Excellent. And if you know someone that you think would be a great interviewee or you have a topic that you'd like us to cover, please feel free to let us know. Thanks for listening, and we hope you can join us next time on Deep Breaths. Deep Breaths.